Hey everybody, welcome to another amazing episode of The Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Ash Lorp, and this is going to be episode 140. This week, we're joined by Ben Raditz, a partner and co-founder of the legendary Kansas City-based production studio, MK12. We discuss how Ben got his start in the industry and how MK12 came about, the bizarre economy of pitching in the motion graphics industry, and how detrimental it can be to work for free. This episode is brought to you by Learn Squared, an art education platform founded and powered by industry-leading artists. Learn cutting-edge art techniques and discover firsthand how other artists from around the world learn. Head over to LearnSquared.com and apply the promotional code COLLECTIVE during checkout to get 10% off your order. Here we go, everyone. Episode 140 with Ben Raditz. Let's roll. I've been watching you from quite a far, you know, I've, I'm not a veteran in this, in this industry at all. I've quite new, probably been in the industry maybe six years now. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff that you'd been a part of and created and been, you know, attributed to is a big inspiration for me, especially when I started out. Um, so it's really cool to first and foremost, have a conversation with you here today. And one of the big things that really kind of sparked this uh us having this episode was um the 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 pitching and all that stuff we're going to get into that too the business running the business the industry and all that kind of state stuff the state of the the affairs actually went right through your motionographer post again um the for those that are listening that aren't don't know what i'm talking about there's a post um that justin Cohn made um uh, in regards to a letter that Ben had sent in, in, internally in his company about pitching and um, the negative, like the the bad the the bad things that come from pitching for free and all that kind of stuff, and it sparked. I, I read through all the comments, and there's a lot of interesting viewpoints, and it seemed like nobody had a legitimate <laughs> uh, viewpoint. I, we'll get into that later too. Um, uh, cause it's quite interesting. And my goal for me personally is to know a little bit more about you, understand what you do and how you do it, why you love the things you do. And then I really want to dig into this big conundrum of pitching. And it would be amazing if we can come to some sort of resolve to give somebody some su- support. Um, as far as like, you know, uh, there's a problem, but we need to find a solution. I think using the podcast as a tool to get there is, is a way to go about it, you know? So, um, but yeah, so that's a long winded intro and lots of weird stuff that I want to go through, but, um, well, first and foremost, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on. It's going to be fun. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, maybe what we can do to get some context for people that might not be familiar with who you are and what you do, um, want to talk a little bit about like the origins of mk12 and or maybe just you and yourself and your career and just you know the origins of like how you came to be who you are today sure um yeah actually i think i could probably talk about both since they're both fairly intertwined um so i'm based in kansas city uh i came here for the kansas city art institute back in the early 90s 94 through 98 um and I came here because I wanted to be a, a Disney animator, <clears throat> and I was living out in California at the time. And so, you know, at the time, it was CalArts and Kansas City Art Institute that were the big, heavy Disney recruiting places. So, <clears throat> came to the Art Institute with, you know, intentions of just focusing strictly on on animation, specifically character animation. Um, I remember it was like the first or second day I was there, <clears throat> and I was drawing on the the kind of common lawn that they have. And, uh, the senior comes up to me and strikes up a conversation and says, well, what do you, you know, what are you doing here? What do you want to do? And bright eyed and bushy tailed, I said, Oh, I want to be a Disney animator. And he sort of looks at me and he says, well, why the hell do you want to do that? And he 
turned around and walked off. And, you know, up to that point, I guess I never really questioned why the hell I wanted to do that. It was just something that I wanted to do. Um, so that was kind of the, the, the thesis that kept me going throughout the rest of school is like, okay, well, I want to do animation. I don't want to, maybe I don't want to work for Disney. So what else can happen? Hmm. Um, and that was 90, yeah, 94, 95 when I first started to get into computer animation and <clears throat> the artists who had just gotten computers and they had just gotten after effects and 3ds max. Um, so yeah, so I just kind of got my start there and, you know, screwed around with different applications and trying to figure out how to, you know, how to make things work and how to break things. And at the time there was a couple of other students that were really into computer animation as well. <clears throat> and we would always collaborate on projects and help each other out and, you know, just work together to try to figure out solutions to things that nobody had any idea how to solve. Um, and those guys eventually ended up becoming MK12 right after school. Um, we had, uh, kind of split and went our separate ways for about a year after the Art Institute where we were working on this big ambitious feature film project uh, that never made it off the, uh, off the page, but that kept us working together after school. And then, um, <clears throat> yeah, we had all come back together to get, uh, again as a, um, as a web design team. There was an investor here in town that wanted to um, start up a website that was sort of like Napster, but for artists that can share work. And so we were all working together on that. And about a year later, he pulled out and decided he didn't want to spend any more money on a on a venture. Um, but he gave us the computers uh, as, as uh, kind of a severance package. So we decided, well, instead of going our separate ways again, let's just kind of keep this thing going that we have. And that became the, the foundation of MK12. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, that's cool. And it sounds like it came naturally, right? Like things yeah, kind of it, was, into themselves. it was really organic. Like none of us had ever planned to, uh, like we never planned to get into motion graphics. We never planned to get into animation commercially. We just knew that there was this thing that we all loved doing and we loved doing it together. And that was right around the time when, you know, digital filmmaking was like a big new exciting thing. Res, Res Magazine was out and there was ResFest and, you know, everybody was really excited about digital animation. So I, I think we came in at just the right time because uh, we, we were able to ride that wave uh, for quite a while, and that's that's how we got our name out there and how we got started was just accidentally becoming part of this you know digital animation movement, completely unintentional, but uh, you know the shoe fits, so we wore it. Yeah, and I think that's a that's for me the 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 things that you know these are very big things like starting a company and all that kind of stuff. But the more natural it comes about seems to be the best way, you know, um, when solutions naturally come right before you, it's usually the best way to kind of just go and follow that path, if that makes sense. So it's just like, oh, okay, well, you like this, I like this, let's do this together and we can join our efforts, you know, and then that's the best way. Whereas like I've noticed a lot of people force this side of it and I think it, it causes more harm than, than good, you know, so uh, that's cool. It's cool to hear that though. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the, the if you build it, it will come sort of mentality of putting things together. Yeah. You know, like if you do it and you love it and it shows, then eventually somebody's going to pay attention. If not, maybe you're in the wrong line of work. But the idea is, yeah, like you just put out there what you love doing and what you like making and, you know, hopefully somebody responds to it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that, um, I think that, you know, literally that's how things kind of should evolve, you know, naturally, the more natural that it can be, the better, you know? So, um, awesome. Yeah. So it's cool to know your origin story too. I mean, there's, if you think about how, how effective Disney has been on the young creative minds, I mean, 
there's it's it, his reach and his ability and the people that were behind that company to you know em, capture imagination and also get people quite excited about creating art it's quite interesting um what do you what is it nowadays what is, what's the thing that's the big draw nowadays is, is it still disney what what do you think it is for young artists and creatives because for us it was it was disney right i mean i'm 33 i don't know how old you are but when i grew up it was like jim henson you know james cameron um uh walt disney um i had quite a few people that i mean steven spielberg these are all big influencers on me uh ridley scott but um you know disney was a big one and now it's like what is it now do you think <laughs> it's kind of everything i mean back then you know disney was yeah it was about the only game in town i mean there were obviously independent animation studios and there was venues for it there's like you know spike and mike sick and twisted film festival or there was uh, liquid television but you know it wasn't anything like you couldn't really hope to make a living at, at animation um <clears throat> doing any of those things or you know if you were to make a living at it that would be you know after 10 or 15 years of apprenticeship and mentoring and then starting your own studio and it was a lot more difficult um and i think the same is true now as it was you know at the very beginning of um when digital animation started to become a thing is like that opened up anything um, you know, like when you can sit, <clears throat> uh, when you're a single guy and you can, you know, sit in your studio at home and crank out stuff that's the same quality as a big studio, um, that really starts to blow the lines between like where the professionalism begins and where the art ends and what, uh, what venues you can produce work for. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, these days it's almost as common for, you know, individuals or individual creative directors to work on big campaigns or, you know, big network shows or something like that. Um, it's as, as much as any, as any studio does, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's completely pluralistic these days. There's no, there's no way that you can, you can try to summarize like, okay, what's, what's the influence now? Or what do you, what do you do? What, if you want to be an animator, there's, there's literally thousands of things that you can do with that. So it's a lot more specialized. Yeah, I know. It's really cool. It's interesting to see the state of things, too. I just like uh, it's interesting because, you know, like as we grew up, yeah, there was a couple outlets, you know, there was like Liquid Television and all that kind of stuff. MTV actually was a channel that was relevant. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can go on and on about that, but whatever. Um, <laughs> I'll just keep the ranting to a, a minimum so we can get to the good stuff. But um, is there some memorable moments in the making of this, you know, with you, this this company? Is there some moments that stand out to you as like, wow, like you really hit a stride there. That was like a very special moment for you creatively or for your team or, you know, recognition or is there something that stands out one or two things that you can remember from the, the, the just building up this company and, and being a part of this process? Well, I think probably the, the first thing I'd mentioned is one of the first projects that we worked on. Um, it, when I was in, uh, when I was at the Art Institute, I had spent my entire senior year. I dropped all my other classes and focused specifically on the senior thesis project, which was this big, long, convoluted, thirty-minute CGI animated hybrid live-action piece. Um, and it, you know, it, it's obviously I look at it now and I kind of hate it, but at the time, like I was really proud of it. And it, it went pretty far in the film festival circuit, and it got into Resvest. Um, and the festival director, uh, John Turk, liked the piece so much that he asked if I would be interested in helping out with the branding of, of ResFest for that year. Um, and we had just started MK12 and thought, like, hey, this might be a great project to you know, kind of get started and get our name out there. Um, 
so we did the yeah basically the opening titles for ResFest 2000 um and that went over like gangbusters like they traveled all around the world i think that was the biggest year for the festival um and got a lot of attention from that um and that really kind of set the tone for mk12 for probably the next four or five years in terms of you know us putting work out that we like making and having clients come to us because of that as opposed to the other way around mm, yeah that's a that's a good model to have though huh i mean like you said to touch on it like if you build it they will come seems like you guys are are keen on that as well and quite that's quite a a thing that you guys are using to kind of build that um that brand i guess for example like building the work that you're proud of or building work that um is somewhat significant and special to you. How do you maintain that as a company? I mean, that's quite a complicated thing. I, I believe in that solely myself, but I am just a freelancer. I work from home. I don't have like a massive, you know, I don't have heavy overhead and all those kind of complexities to deal with on a daily <laughs> basis, you know, which I don't want to have. That's really scary to me. Right. So, um, <laughs> cause I have friends that, um, were originally designers became business people. Um, there's an art to business a hundred percent, but, I don't want to do that because it's like I, it would take away from the time that I'd want to be doing the work that I love, which is just creating, you know, but it's, it's, it's also about knowing what you want in life, you know, so. Right. Um, yeah, where to, where to start with that one? <laughs> it's a big one. Yeah, it's a big one. It's very complicated. Uh, it's, I mean, you know, like as, as a studio, I think that we, you know, I'm, I'm careful to create differences between us and other studios because I'm not intimate with how a lot of other studios work. But just from the, you know, from the ones that I am familiar with, we're we're fairly different in the sense that we're a, we're an artist collective more than a motion design studio at MK12, and we're we're um, we're really small. I mean, we're only six people strong at the moment. Largest we've ever been is about twelve, um, which you know is fairly manageable, and it's, yeah, it's nice to get to know everybody's idiosyncrasies and everybody's creative interests. And so, when you're working on a project, it's really easy to identify, like, oh, you'd be great at you know taking this part of it, you'd be great at that part of it. And we all kind of work together collaboratively. Um, like it's a very lateral system in terms of us not having a you know, creative director that manages product projects, and everybody underneath kind of has to execute that vision. Um, it's, it's much more collaborative, collaborative in the sense that, um, you know, somebody might have a really great idea for the story and another person might have a great idea for how the story should look. Um, you know, and so everybody kind of gets together and it's, it's, it, a lot of our work becomes an amalgamation, um, which I think works, uh, to our benefit quite often. I mean, it doesn't always work out that way on, on commercial jobs. Um, but for our own internal projects, it's great because you add all these different things together and the Boolean of what you get from all of that is the, the end product. And it's not a compromise so much as, you know, us as artists trying to learn how to work together. Yeah. No, that's and awesome. I don't think that answered any part of your question. No, but I think it, it kind of does. It touches on some of the, the things that I was going at. But I think it's also just it's cool and it's interesting to kind of see, you know, like the alchemy of things and how um, different companies work. I mean, I've worked for a couple of few different companies and then I've kind of just more or less just jumped straight to working with the, the directors and productions and all that kind of stuff. So. Um, but I always find it quite fascinating. It's quite interesting too. And, um, yeah, the, the, the risks that people take to run a company, I think it's really important too. And we're going to get into that too, um, later on in the conversation when we get into, you know, the business of the business basically. But, um, yeah, no, it's cool. And it's cool to also know about these memorable moments for you. How, how important for you guys as a company is, uh, internal personal kind of projects and stuff uh, is at a very high 
value thing that you guys are constantly aware of and doing? And is that something like a design of part of like just keeping you guys going or um, how does that go in, into your like overall spectrum? Like, okay, we have to pay the bills obviously, but we need to have play time. Is that an important part of your guys's like uh, formula? Yeah. I mean, it, it's actually sort of the, the foundation. Um, we don't do this as much anymore, but back when we uh, first got started, we would, be very meticulous about creating short films that worked into, you know, like a, a website relaunch. We designed new letterhead and a new logo. And so all of those things kind of went together as a, as a branding system, sort of as a way to, you know, expand a story. So it's not just a short film. Um, but I mean, one, it's, it's, it's important for the sake of just being able to practice. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, too, on client jobs, like the turnaround is so fast and so fast that, you rarely have a time to experiment. There's just, you know, like yeah. building in failure into your projects is incredibly important um, because usually, you know, one, it gives you a chance to kind of try a different direction, but two, like there might be something in that failure um, and that opportunity for failure that you just don't get when you're working under a really hard deadline. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's really important for us to make these short films uh, and other internal projects, one, because it lets us practice, but then two, you know, at our core, that's just, you know, we, we started as a filmmaking collective, not a, you know, not a commercial studio. Yeah. And commerce came afterwards, which is great. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, for us, it's important. Like, it's, it's always been an important tool for us to be able to put out work that we really like making and um, having clients come to us because of that. There's a problem with, you know, if you just kind of keep doing client work, not always a bad thing, but it's, you know, you're, it's always a compromise between what you want and what the client needs. Um, so, you, you know, it, it never really represents exactly what you want to say as a designer, as an artist, or as a filmmaker. Um, and it's important to have that voice out in the world, especially if you're just wanting to get back work that you don't completely hate and doesn't completely suck, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. It's a, it's a very relevant and completely, um, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer in that because you do need to have that time for failure and you don't want to do it, uh, on the clock of a, of a client because it's just irresponsible, but it's really important as an artist, as a creative, as a unit of people to have a place where it's comfortable, you're, you're, you're free to fail. You know, I think it's really quite important to have that, that, that yeah. ability to do, to do so. And I think it's really a big, important factor in making great work is, is being able to, to have that time to go like, Oh, you know, I learned this thing here and then I want to apply it to that. And then who knows, you might have a, a, the answer to some, a future project, a client request, like, you know, six months down the line, You're like, Oh, you know, that thing I was talking about that one time, Oh, it's right here, you know, and I've seen it many times too, from creative professionals, like they would do something interesting. Uh, it was like a test or something. Then it became, you know, uh, like a connection between many different things and an alchemy. If you like, I like, um, uh, I'm trying to think of a case study, for example, but, um, and I don't know, I guess I could just only use my own self, but if I go and often try something weird, um, I'll usually end up using that eventually somehow in a different place. Yeah. But the passion is usually the most important thing because it all comes back down to that for me at least. And for the work that I, um, connect with personally. So you're, yeah, you're, totally. I mean, in a go, go ahead, sorry. kind of rewinding a couple of questions, like a good case in point, um, one of the other studio milestones I was going to mention was uh, Stranger Than Fiction in 2007, <clears throat> only because that that was that kind of opened the door to doing a lot of film work afterwards, which is work that we really love doing. Yeah. Um, 
But, you know, like on that project, they came to us at the very end of production and they had tried a bunch of directions uh, for the graphics in the film. They just hated it. And so, you know, we were we were, you know, sort of the last ditch effort to get something working on the film. And there wasn't a lot of time. And we had previously been working on um, some tests for an internal project that had graphics that were kind of attached to people in situational environments like out in the real world. And um, so when this project came to us, we thought like, oh, shit, this would be a great thing to, to try to work on there. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and so you know, we were able to kind of sell that through pretty easily. And that that's what ended up in the in the final film. And had we not made that effort beforehand, I don't know if, that, you know, we would have been able to turn around anything that they were happy with. It's a very seminal piece for you guys as a studio, too. It's a very memorable. It's one that's been completely ripped off a million times, uh, you know, <laughs> to the moon and back. Uh, you know, we get... Even in, yeah, and that's the thing is like there's not really a lot to it, you know. I think yes. it was just like it just it worked in that context really well. But yeah, even to this day, probably a month doesn't go by that we don't get a call from somebody wanting to, you know, do a Stranger Than Fiction kind of knockoff. <laughs> how, do you, a, how do you deal with that? Then? Sorry, go ahead. Say again. Uh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. You're saying there's an After Effects script. Yeah, that that basically simulates it's almost a quote unquote, but all of that stranger than fiction crap. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. kind of cool and weird. No, it, it is, and it's quite interesting too. Um, I mean, how do you, as a, as a creative in the company, that you make this like seminal thing that becomes like the like the, the the piece that people remember you for how do you this is always the problem right it's like the sophomore is it the sophomore blues or something like that when you make uh, there's a hit that happens right. it naturally happens out of just the progression of being curious and, and making things but how do you go beyond that and go like hey guys i don't just do this one thing um we also do this you know and, and how do you approach that uh, if I had that answer, I'm sure I'd be a millionaire right now. Yeah, I think so <laughs> you know, it's, too. Just, it's impossible to it's impossible to predict what people will like, and even if you could, you know, maybe that's not something that you personally like. Um, so you know, you just kind of keep putting ideas out there and seeing what sticks. Which yeah. is a lot easier back in the day because there weren't that many studios. You know, I'm talking like early 2000s. Um, you know, and certainly not a lot of studios that were putting out their own internal projects. Um, so, you know, there's a lot less people on the playing field, but, you know, fast forward 10 years and here we are in 2016 and there's like thousands of studios and thousands of people and all very talented and incredibly capable. So trying to find a voice within that and do something different than everybody else is doing is, is incredibly difficult. Yep. Yeah, it is. And it's just, um, we'll get into that in a bit too, but I think one of the issues is just the oversaturation of things, you know, and just how many people are out there kind of trying to get their piece of the pie and all that stuff, which is totally fine. Everybody is entitled to whatever life that they want, as long as they're not harming other people. I think that's my opinion, but, um, but no, yeah, but I mean, yeah, finding the, uh, I think that's, you know, that's a very complicated thing, you know, being able to go past, um, you know, a seminal project and then go like, okay, what's next? You know, I've noticed I've, I've watched the trends of some companies. They make that, they make that one hit and then they just keep repeating that hit over and over because they don't have like the uh, self-discipline to be like, tell their client like, no, I need to do something a little bit different or right. whatever it might be, or they need to keep the lights on and you can't, you can't, you can't, that's not my place to judge them, you know? So, um, you know, it's, it's a natural, it's a natural endeavor, but no, it's interesting. And that's just something I wanted to ask you because you've been doing this 
you've been in the in this industry for quite a long time you know and hitting you know there's quite a few seminal pieces that you guys have done that have you know encouraged or also um, created some interesting you know trends basically from you know and being able to go beyond that you know is, is quite interesting is there a creative person a, a um a designer or somebody in the industry that you admire that kind of is somebody that you know you look at as an influence for you that's a tough one um it varies all the time and i you know i don't mean to dodge when you ask that question but you know a lot of a lot of inspiration for me comes from sources outside of design and i I try to be very conscious about not getting into that feedback loop of you know uh you know following modern designers or looking at modern design trends Um, because even subconsciously i think that tends to find its way into the work so as, as pure as you can be about your influences um and you know being as conscious as you can about not trying to follow those kind of trends. Uh, it's, you know, be that as it may, like I, there's not really a lot of modern illustrators, designers, artists that I look to as, as a source of personal inspiration. Um, you know, certainly as a studio, when you open it up, everybody's got, you know, whatever their interests are as well. Um, so all of that somehow, you know, mixes together and makes it the, the work that we do. Um, I don't know, but, I, you know, for me, I, I, I look at... Um, I, I look at a lot of artists and designers like, from the past. Like, for example, Marie Spender, uh, when I was wanting to get into title sequence design, was you know the guy to follow. Loved all his work. I had a brilliant mind. Um, but you know, at the same time, that's not something that I think has necessarily rubbed off on me as an aesthetic. It's just you know I admired him more as a person. Or like Charles and Ray Ames, only be, not. I mean, you know, obviously their their design work is fantastic, but it's the process through which they got to that design, uh, yeah. to those designs or those projects, like all the world traveling that they did and all the influences that they brought back with them from those travels that then turned into, you know, whatever, whatever project they were working on. Um, so yeah, so I, I, I think I find myself more influenced by that than by specific designers or, or works. Yeah, you're right. I think that, um, unknowing to the creative, a lot of stuff sits inside the subconscious and then it does affect the work. If you're constantly on like say Behance and you're constantly, um, pulling that as like, say that's the water hole that you use as an influence or inspiration. Um, chances are that somebody else is, and then that's going to also affect your work. It's quite difficult though, to be in that weird fringe where you're like, I'm not going to be like, I'm trying to be in a vacuum, but at the same time, like great ideas don't come from that. I think, I believe great ideas, as you mentioned from the people that you're inspired by come from a, a life of experience. And I think that really influences the work when you can have that variety um, not just in like a Pinterest account, but like actually going to a, a location <laughs> and, 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 and being influenced by like, you know, the, the color of the curry inside the Indian food that you would eat in some kind of like cafe diner in London or something, you know, like something right. obscure and, and random that would just kind of feed into your design. I, I, I think a lot of great artists and designers alike myself personally, uh, I, the ones I admire are the ones that really do live quite a unique life that have a lot of influence from there. You know, like the life itself is kind of, driven a lot of that influence for them so right um, but I, I mean i guess it's a it's, it's a tough one you know I, the reason why i'm bringing these up is because it's a common question that i think a lot of people that are listening to this uh this this these podcasts 
are asking themselves as well. And I think this, it's interesting to hear what fuels and motivates other creatives, you know? So especially somebody, yeah. uh, you know, of, of your lineage and stuff. So where you come from. So, um, you're really into, um, title sequences, right? Obviously you're, you know, you've been a part of many, but like, what, what is it about title sequences that really drives you to, you know, continually work on them? I think title sequences are sort of the closest commercial equivalent you can get to creating short films in in the sense that, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that you need to consider. It's not just a design project. Like you have to consider the whole movie and you have to think about the story and then you have to design, um, you know, this small little film that kind of, and at least ideally takes those best, those best bits of the story and turns them into kind of a, you know, a haiku, like a summary of it without giving too much away. Um, so it's it's just it's a, it's a really interesting challenge to factor in all of these things and make an original work from it um, that is creatively very charged, but at the same time still is in service of the of the full film, you know. Yeah. So it's yeah, I mean it's sort of a home away from home. Like if we don't have a short film project that we're working on, or you know if we're in the middle of a bigger film project and you know just want to kind of switch directions and. Uh, you know, keep things fresh for a little bit. Like working on a title sequence is, is very creatively satisfying. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I think we've been fortunate to, to work on some films that we actually, you know, enjoy. And, it, you know, we we're very proud of the fact that we've, you know, contributed even in, you know, a small amount to these films that we actually like to sit down and watch on third or fourth viewings. Yeah. That's a, that's a, um, a very rare occasion because, yeah, there's so many anomalies that it takes to make something great, especially in the realm of film. It's just, it's like lightning in a bottle, really, you know, like you can have all all the best intentions can come from everybody and it could just turn out to be a turd. I think, you know, it's just really like, (laughs) it's it's quite a complex thing, as you know, um, navigating creative in a company and also navigating it in the industry is quite complicated and stuff. Um, Well, I think too, with, I mean, the, the, the thing about title sequences, too, is that there's there's an expectation of, of excellence that's kind of built into it Yeah, that you don't see a lot in, in uh, other commercial work, like advertising. Like, a lot of advertising plays are very safe, you know, because they want to appeal to a wide demographic and they want to make sure that the message is clear and that, you know, X person in accounting is happy, as happy as X person in marketing. And, like, there's, there's, there's a lot of safeties built into to um you know commercial advertising work that just don't even factor into title design like the, the goal of title design is to do your best creative work and you know have a strong voice and and really kind of focus on the creative effort there as opposed to the safety the, the safety effort that you're doing on commercial stuff yeah well it's all design right you know like the the reason why they take a safe route is because they want a, a pure the design of pure effectiveness you know so um, whereas like, right. t- titles, like you said, I think that's exactly what it is. And that's what attracts me too. is like, you have this ability to have this massive audience that you would have your short film, basically that's connected to design. And it also is kind of connected to all the really interesting things that I like about t- design, which is like t- topography and, and, and the, the movements of things and how things are composed and all that kind of fun stuff. So it's like a never ending fun experience. Basically. Uh, it's one of my favorite things to work on too. I love them. Yeah. They're so fun. They're creatively yeah. fulfilling. And they're one of those things having done like, you know, UI design and stuff for films, but also being able to do title sequences. Um, I'm working on one recently, actually. It's coming up, and I'm excited about it. It's going to be a lot of fun. 
Um, for you, um, do things kind of naturally come about? You mentioned like um, the production team reaching out to you guys for Stranger Than Fiction, like things like that. Does it kind of naturally come about like, oh, from here, then we're going to go to the next scene or, oh, you know what? We're thinking about doing the title sequence. Would you guys be interested in that? Does, is that kind of how it works for you? Is it is more of a, like a relationship that you have with these people that kind of spawns into different things? It's, that's how it works for me. Um, but I was just curious how it is for you and the team. Yeah, I mean, it's very much about connect the dots, you know, like it's, uh, <clears throat> yeah, as a studio of six people, like we obviously don't have a like strong promotional arm, you know, we, we really rely on the kind of, on just the work itself to, to kind of help promote us. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? So it's, yeah, like we, now, now I'm trying to back up to your, <laughs> to your original question there. <laughs> it's all good. You'll um, get to him. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, Sure. I, yeah, actually, repeat that if you don't mind. I kind of lost myself in my train of thought. No, that's okay. I mean, what I was talking about is just like, you know, connecting the dots on jobs and stuff. A lot of people ask me like, well, how do you do that? Like, how do you get that one? Or like, how did, how did this job come about? And a lot of it's just naturally putting yourself out there. For me, it is. It's throwing, putting yourself out there, letting the world know it is what it is that you do and why you do it. And then when you're, when you, like for me, when I work directly with like a director, for example, it's just more or less like, well, you have this part in the scene inside your film and somebody has to manifest it. Would you like me to take a stab at it? And that usually, um, where everything kind of comes from. And I, I guess that's just me being an entrepreneur or whatever, um, the way I, I think and work and trying to, you know, find opportunities to help whenever I can. Um, is it similar for you? Cause I, that's what, I, what I'm getting at is I noticed you guys have a diverse range and things and you guys work on different productions and stuff. I imagine like, you know, a production artist from this one would go to you guys again, if he's on another film, and be like, Hey, these guys did this. And I know this guy over there, I know Ben over here, you know, maybe he can help with that part or whatever. So how much right. of it is that in the industry for you, for you guys? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's, um, yeah, I think that's where I was going with the point I was making before. Like, there's, there's, there's really not a deliberate plan um, or, or, or a way that we kind of approach those projects. And we just kind of play it by ear. So, sure. like, a good example would be on um, when we worked on Quantum Solace, <clears throat> we were originally brought on for that just to do UI design and, and gadget tech. We had been working on that for a couple of months. Um, but, you know, obviously, us being us, like, we'd always dreamed about doing a uh, Bond title sequence. And so we decided... You know, hell or high water we were going to do our best to, to get our foot in that door um so you know like by day we'd be working on ui design and stuff like that and then by night we'd be secretly working on these ideas for a title sequence um and it was a total cold pitch like we had we had told mark uh, mark forster the director that we were kind of working on it and he said hey that's you know great if you come up with an idea um but he didn't mention it to anybody else up the chain um and so it was a complete cold pitch when we you know uh, talked about the idea of doing the title sequences with or the title sequence with the producer. Um, so, you know, like sometimes those things work out and sometimes they don't. I think we yeah. just got really lucky on that particular film, but it seems like in, yeah, in film it's much more about contacts and, you know, who, you know, and if you did a good job on film X, then somebody from that job will recommend you for film Y. Yeah. Um, you know, where in the agency world, it's a lot more political and there's, you know, reps and agents and things like that. So it's much more about their efforts, I think. Um, yeah, you know, we, should, we can maybe you know. actually segue into that because I don't, um, for me personally, from my standpoint, um, and I'm going to step on toes and whatever, uh, I'll do it myself. <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't, I don't use agencies. I don't 
I don't seek them out. I don't have a rep. Um, I do just fine for myself. I don't think it's necessary. Um, mm-hmm. I, I see from my standpoint, I look at it kind of like a, it's a middleman that gets in, in the way between me and communicating with my client that I, ultimately is on a film is my director whoever that might be in that I don't want anybody getting in the way of that. Or if it's for a client, um, somebody getting in the way of that would only just cause me more headache than anything else, you know? And I see the point I have friends that have, um, reps and stuff. And I, but I see it as being a, an old world tradition. If that makes sense, it's almost like, um, like a store that's a brick and mortar store that exists. And then you have somebody that's, you know, your source, you, they grab all the products and they bring it into the store and then a la internet and then Amazon, it's like, well, your store is irrelevant now because we don't need that physical lo- location because we have Amazon now. And it's a direct feed to the client from the, the, the client to the consumer. Everything is direct. What's your thoughts on that? What, what I mean, the agency thing, the rep thing, all that stuff. Do you play that game? What's your what's what's the strengths and weaknesses of it for you? We do. Um, yeah, we're, we're currently represented by a, a production company out of New York called Rabbit. Um, you know, it's it's a love hate thing, and not specifically with them, but just the whole idea of reps and agents. Because going back to something you said earlier, and just being able to focus on the work. Um, you know, ourselves being a small studio, if we wanted to, you know, try to promote ourselves and do all the cold calls to agencies and, you know, go to agencies and, you know, do the, do the song and dance pitch and stuff like that. Like one, that's not a world just as artists that we're completely, like we don't feel completely natural there. Um, you know, and then second, it's nice just to not have to worry so much about that side of the business sometimes and just worry about, you know, about working on stuff. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's good in that sense, but at the same time, like you don't, <clears throat> you're completely trusting somebody else to bring you the types of projects that, that matter to you, you know, sure. so you have to make an assumption and there has to be a lot of trust there. Um, <clears throat> and you know, it's, uh, just to be completely honest, like that's, uh, I don't think we would be in business if it wasn't for representation only because, you know, being in Kansas city, um, we rely on work from the coast in order to survive there's just not much of it here in town and i don't you know i don't know if we'd want to do that much of it if there were do you think locations um, that important anymore though you know it's it's weird um i you know part of me wants to say that no it doesn't matter anymore and especially now with the internet um it's not that big of a deal I, it feels like that trend has sort of shifted the other way where it is more localized now whereas you know a couple of years ago probably for a good decade, um, you know, like we were very proud of being in Kansas city and we still are, but, um, you know, and especially with film, I think directors like to be able to just kind of pop in and see what you're working on and, you know, um, just have that opportunity to have like last minute meetings and things like that. So as we're moving more into film, we're finding that location is, is a little bit more important than with, than with advertising oh, interesting. Uh, you know but at the same time you know, kansas city is the the first city to get google fiber so we've got killer killer bandwidth <laughs> so that that definitely works out to our you know to our benefit hmm. um but yeah I, I mean i guess not so much anymore it's not as an overall statement i think i, I think location is is not as important as it used to be um it just kind of depends on which industry you're talking about 
Yeah, definitely. Well, I found it not to really, I mean, I guess uh, I'm in San Diego. I'm in Northern San Diego. I'm about two hours away from LA. I'm much closer than you are to LA. Um, but I, I'm watching the, um, the writing on the walls, basically, uh, the, how the film industry and the Hollywood system and all that stuff itself is, is, it's, it's <laughs> if you look at the numbers, it's a numbers game here. If we look at it just on the facts, because the reason why I'm using numbers is because you can't beat the numbers. So you have video games, for example. Um, if you look at the numbers that video games pull in the, the audience and the, the actual income, the money revenue that comes through for video games, uh, it's not you can't even compare them to the Hollywood output. It's like not even in the same wheelhouse. Like it's <laughs> it's laughable. And then you have industries like say Amazon, for example. Then you look at like Netflix, for example, too. You see, for me, it's like the writings on the walls. You know what's happening in Hollywood, also the system, and then television shows, and then Netflix, and then that whole thing. Because Netflix isn't really television. It's a whole different thing, um, and it's it's a force to be reckoned with, especially for creatives like ourselves who make content for this stuff. It's I think right. for me, it's like it's really important to pay attention to that because um, that's where things are going. At least from my my standpoint, a lot of stuff is going to start moving that way um, quite quickly, you know, as it is already. So I don't know. There's it's a lot of stuff I, I, I'm constantly going through in my head. And, and like what I'm saying is I'm in San Diego. I'm quite far, but I, I avoid L.A. like as much as I can. I try not to ever go to L.A. I can't stand the city. The traffic drives me nuts. I don't like wasting my time. Um, and that's just like usually what it ends up to be. If I if I get the opportunity to meet a director, of course, I'll do what I can to make that happen. But usually it's just using the phone or Skype or something or like um, just sharing screens and talking, you know, nothing beats in person. You're 100 percent right. Um, but man, I, I swear it's getting quite close um, and it works pretty well. So I'm just like a little insight into this, I think is interesting for us to talk about because, you know, there's a lot of people I think are interested in this stuff. So um, the yeah. process behind yeah. it and stuff, I mean, location, the reason why I bring up location is because you are in Kansas, you know, and you are far away from the quote unquote Mecca. But I think the Mecca, what I'm getting at here is not what we think it is and it's changing and it doesn't matter because where's Netflix at or where's Amazon prime at? Where's, you know, what, what are these bigger conglomerates at? Where are the big game studios at? You know? Um, right. and, and again, I guess if you're coming off of trying to build content for the, the main hub, then yeah, you're going to want to be somewhat close to that. But the main hub, I think is just so fast now it's huge and China's buying up like a ton of stuff too it's just interesting really interesting um what's happening with their entertainment industry as well you know there's just it's interesting you know I just like to look at the numbers though and follow the follow the numbers because that's really where there's that's where everything is really you know like you can't right. you can't hide that stuff so it's it's interesting though um yeah yeah know. yeah um by the way fellow San Diego native here I grew up uh that's, that's where I grew up before coming out to uh, Kansas City. Oh, you grew up in San Diego? Uh-huh. Oh, oh awesome. Beach. Oh, awesome. Very cool. <laughs> nice. Very cool. Yeah, I'm up here, like I'm up in the northern area of the San Diego County, so it takes me about 40, 50 minutes to get to the airport down in San Diego, so I'm a bit ways up north. Um, but I like I like being away from everything, honestly, um, to kind of touch on what you're saying, being too close or looking at artists too closely. I kind of like being able to be isolated, honestly. And then I connect via the internet when I need to. And when I have my connections with people is a lot of the podcasts and stuff. But for the most part, I like just kind of having a simpler life in suburb suburbia. So I don't have to um, worry about, you know, 
am I going to get stabbed right now or something like that? Just, I don't, I don't want to deal with that, you know? So <laughs> well, yeah. that, you know, like specifically going back to inspiration, like I, I think that's one of the reasons that we do really like being in, in Kansas city. Cause you know, even, I mean, obviously with the internet, you can be everywhere, but there's just something sort of fundamentally nice about feeling like you're isolated and yeah. that you're not part of all these other clubs. And I think that, could be part of the reason why you know a lot of our work doesn't look like work that other studios has is because we don't share the same cool freelancers so you know like that's true having that survivor mentality does wonders for the work in, in my opinion but you know also to that point like the great thing about being out here is that if you really just want to get out of town like on a weekend or on an evening you know like an hour's drive in any direction it'll land you in like, a weird place you've never been before and you know uh maybe a weird flea market with all kinds of cool stuff that you never even existed. And so like there's, and it, it feels like the potential for finding that kind of inspiration just doesn't exist or at least not, not as readily as it, as it does out here. Um, you know, just because you don't have that many people that are out doing the exact same thing that you are. Yeah, no, it's true. It's totally relevant. And I think being a, I mean, it's, it's a double edged sword, you know? So like, if you're not a part of the hub, then you're missing out. But then if you're not a part of the hub, then you're not a part of the hub and you're not a part of everybody else's trends. And then you can kind of have these random sporadic, um, moments of, I think it's more or less, if anything, it's just being cognizant. Cause even if you were in LA, you'd probably be cognizant of it, but it would influence your subconscious as you mentioned. And I totally agree with that. You know, if you're constantly feeding your subconscious, all this stuff or being in that hub, no matter what you do, it's going to affect you and your work. Um, either way, right. whether, whether you defend it, you de- whether you try to defeat it or not, it's going to be a part of it because it's just the way our brains work. We're constantly taking in data always, you know, and constantly feeding that. So, um, yeah, yeah th- that gets very nebulous. I want to let's, if it's okay with you, we can j- jump in and start talking about, you know, the pitching, the pitching, the process of pitching, um, you know, to kind of summarize the, the article that you had on, motionographer um your standpoint on it and how like you know you looked at it's the writing on the walls basically you're seeing like look like this is a major company they want us to do work for free we just can't do that it's very damaging we have bills to pay we have families to feed um let's like let's acknowledge i think to do the best most like constructive conversation let's acknowledge the problem because i know everybody realizes that there's a problem and there's a there's a big problem that's happening and then i would love for us to try and figure out constructive solutions to help encourage people's better um habits to make a better industry for all of us i guess um yeah because i mean and, and we can talk a little bit about you know i'm going to play devil's advocate through this whole thing but i'd like for you to kind of touch base on you know why you sent that email out and then why it was like you felt compelled to let justin share that with everybody else too because you don't have to do that you could be just like everybody else and hide that stuff but you chose to you know speak out about it there's a reason why so how did that come about well i think i mean going way back something that you mentioned earlier uh just about kind of oversaturation of the market you know i mean that's that's problem number one, and it's—I mean—it's not a problem in the sense that it's great that there's a lot of there's a lot of really good talent these days, um, and that the industry is thriving. You know, it's like I, I think that we've been in a renaissance for you know probably a decade or even more. Yeah. Um, but the obvious downfall of that is that it just creates intense competition for everything. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm careful when I when I speak on an agency's behalf because I don't really know the thinking that goes behind a lot of agency decisions. But it seems like the the, the uh, it's a fairly common trend these days to take advantage of that. 
and um, you know to understand that yes, there's you know there's a dozen companies out there um, that really need this job, and so we're going to contact all twelve of them, and they're going to do it for free, or at least the you know the spec part of it or the pitch part of it, um, because if they don't do it, we're just going to go to this other company, and they're going to do it instead. Um, you know, and that's 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 something that's been going on now for quite a while, um, time, yeah. and so there's no reason for agencies to not to not sort of follow that practice, you know? How long ago do you think um, this started, this this trend? How many years back do you think? Can, it feels... Can you pinpoint it? Sort of. I mean, I can't, I can't pinpoint it to any specific, you know, kind of like I can't say like in 2007 this started happening, but it does feel like in the last five years that's been the trend. Uh, before that, you know, like what was common for us was to, you know, get invited to a pitch and there'd probably be three companies I'd say maybe half of those were paid and they weren't paid very well, but you know, the logic behind that being that they can own the work. Uh, so you therefore can't take whatever you learned on that job and apply it to something else, which in my mind is really smart. Yeah. Um, it's a business move. So, yeah. And you know, I mean, it is, it is common language in, in, uh, in the industry and broadcasting and advertising to triple bid things. You know, it's just, that's standard practice. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, it's, it seems like, these days, agencies are taking that even further and further. So instead of triple bid, maybe they'll have a dozen companies pitch first, and then they'll choose three of those companies to actually forward on to the to the client. Yeah. Um, so in yeah, I mean, it's just it's it's demoralizing, you know. Just to be honest with you, only because it's what does that say about you as an artist when you're put up against a bunch of other um, a bunch of other designers and you're forced to do the song and dance, and it's nobody's coming to you because you know they absolutely love your work they're coming to you because you're one of a bunch of companies that could potentially do it <clears throat> so it, it seems like just as a matter of safety and maybe because of the recession and you know agencies just want to be more careful with clients who are pinching more pennies like they just want to keep as many options open as humanly possible and designers and artists and animators are usually on the you know on the very tail end of that whole that whole chain um, you know and they're the ones that have to stay up you know, 16 hours a day and do that over and over and over again and not be compensated for it. Um, just to jump through these hoops for the potential of working on something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the potential is, is, is a huge lure and it's, it works for me, (laughs) you know, like if there's a position for me to go and do something that I've always wanted to, um, it's, that's, I think that's again, getting at some of the issues you talk about oversaturation. I think the potential or the prospect um, for young people or just people in general that want to have the opportunity to prove themselves or a dream project, a thing that they've been attached to since a child, that they would be willing to do it for free just because they love it. Do you think a lot of this comes, I mean, one of the things that I've identified in myself and other people I've seen that do this is that um, the sheer love of creating things um, comes so naturally for us as creatives and as artists that we will just do what we can to like, it's like very innocent. You're a very innocent person at that point because you're just doing what you love at that moment, you know? And it's kind of like, um, it's easy to take advantage of somebody that is in love, I guess, if that makes sense. I'm, I'm I'm trying to touch in on what I'm trying to touch on is the prospect of possibilities. And that's why people jump at things and will do it for free. Um, and, and I think that's also one of the things that's quite difficult as a creative to stop and say, Hey, like I have to be okay with the idea that I could turn down this dream project because I feel like they're manipulating me or I don't feel like this is right. 
and that's self-restraint and that comes i think with maturity um but it's it's really difficult to ask a stranger or somebody that's listening to this to say like hey a dream project comes along you've been wanting to work on this for your entire life and you should say no because they're not going to pay you for it you know what i'm saying that's a conundrum that's a big conundrum to have and that's why these problems keep surfacing you know, that's one of them also on top of oversaturation. But what's the solution for that one, though? Because that's a very difficult one, right? <clears throat> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you hit on a bunch of points there. But I mean, I think you sort of hit the nail on the head when you talked about artists just wanting to put themselves in the work and really do well. Um, you know, and people taking advantage of that because, yeah, I mean, I don't think we'd be in this line of work unless we really enjoyed what we did or at least theoretically enjoyed what we did. You know, so when you sit down and you work on a pitch, um, you know, if you have eight hours to do it, you're going to do, you're going to spend it an extra few hours because, you know, the type just isn't current quite right or the colors just aren't working well or, you know, so all this time and investment goes into these things that may not ultimately see the light of day. And, you know, that's, that's a part of the business and that's, that's how it goes. And that's, you know, that's just something that you have to accept when you get into it. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, it's, Okay. So that's, yeah. So that's thing one. It's, it's, um, you know, it's very difficult, I think for designers and artists and animators to, to regulate themselves and be able to work with, with, uh, you know, constraints and have a normal eight hour day. Um, but then, yeah, at, at the same time, it's, yeah. I mean, how do you tell, um, you know, like there's lots of opportunities that, that come up at the studio for, you know, projects that we would, you know, we've dreamed of, of working on. Um, you know, and if there's no pitch fee attached to that, it becomes kind of a soul search because yeah, you do want to, you do really want to work on this project. Um, you know, and you're even okay with, you know, working on some initial designs for free. Um, but it, you know, like the entire time you're working on that, you, you know, you're, you just have this feeling in your gut that it's just not right. Like you're, you know, you, you're putting all this time into something and somebody should value that and you should be able to be compensated for that. Um, you know, for that effort. Yeah. So it's tough. I don't know. I mean, it's (laughs) it back to your question. It's, I mean, it's, I don't know if there's any other way to kind of fix things other than to kind of turn into a grassroots effort, you know, and have everybody understand that. Yes. If you do underbid somebody or if you do put in a lot of extra work on something, that's great because you might get that job, but you're, you're tweaking the standards in the future for other artists to come in. Um, and that's, that's specifically what, what has happened, you know, yeah. like, the standards of the past five or six years have been tweaked so much that now, you know, pitching against so many uh, companies and doing it for free and, you know, doing it in a week as opposed to three weeks or whatever. Those are all standard practices now because of what, you know, I'll, I'll include ourselves in this, like what people of us have done in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, we set those expectations so, but you know, just like with any, uh, with government, you know, it always, it, it should always be from the ground up. Like, yes, at the end of the day, uh, you know, advertising agencies and film studios, like they, they need us, you know, they need us, yes. the artists to, to interpret whatever, whatever the, the job is. Um, so I think as an industry, just having a little bit more self-respect for how we spend our time and how we value our time is, is, is the first step. Yeah. No. How that happens? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's the that's the million dollar question. Well, it's a moral choice, you know. I would say for me personally, um, I don't do work for free. Uh, I stopped doing that many a long time ago. 
the work for free, I would do for myself. <laughs> I'd rather do that for myself. If I'm going to do something for free, I'm not going to do it for you. It's like, I might as well do it for myself. And I would say that yeah. there, there's a, there's a big, it's like the moment that, um, let's say, uh, for example, like it's, it's, it's a professional moment that happens to you personally, for me, at least that's what happens. It's like, okay, all right, here, here we are world. I'm taking myself seriously I'm, I'm i'm now i'm a professional and i don't do that stuff for free i just don't do it anymore um and it's like you know the moment that i would say i invested a lot of money into something that was towards my career um, it was a moment that i went from a hobbyist to an actual professional and that's really where it switched and i think that what happens there is that <coughs> there's a mental switch that goes okay i've decided to make this choice i'm sticking with this choice because i know it's morally um better for me i feel like i feel you know better you know um um but it's 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 a challenging thing and i think that's something that i've noticed in myself when i first started and i notice in other creatives that are first starting off um how difficult it is to say no to things that are opportunities i mean when i first started i was like couldn't be the most hungry person to do this and i really would equate this to hunger if you look at like the industry, it looks like a bunch of starving zombies that are, you know, ready to go, you know, and, um, instead of being starving zombies, it's almost like we should have, um, this, this innate, you know, maturity that's in, ingrained in us all to have some restraint and to understand and reflect on when, when it is good to do those things, you know, but man, it is just so difficult. I, I think this is why we're at this conundrum because it is too difficult to negotiate and navigate these waters because if one person like myself, so I make a stand as a professional, right? And I say, no, I'm not doing free work. Somebody comes and asks me to do free work. I just tell them, I just simply ignore them or um, I will politely decline if I feel like I want to even give them any kind of energy and time because <laughs> usually I just ignore that kind of stuff. Um, but then um, it might go off to somebody else. It's like, hey, this could be an opportunity for me to, and, and, and I, and honestly, I can't sit here and morally judge that person as much as I, t as I'm sitting on my high chair. Hey, look at me. I'm not taking free work, but like, it's not fair for me to judge that. And that's a really hard thing for me to live with too, because it's like, all I want to do is judge them and be like, Hey, stop it. You know, you're messing it all up, <laughs> but I don't blame right. them. And that's, again, this is the conundrum I come to. And it was interesting reading through the comments on that motionographer thing, because there was everybody from the gambit of completely agreeing with everything that you had said. And then there were some people that were like, how dare you? you know, stand up for yourself. Right. And I was like, wow, what a weird backwards way of looking at things. Like, um, it's, it's a perspective, Stockholm syndrome. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's great. That you said that cause that's exactly it. And it's weird that, um, it's, I wish they were here on the podcast with us cause I'd love to psychoanalyze them and understand like, whoa, your programming is really weird. And like, why do you think like that? Why do you think it's okay to be abused? And why do you think like it's the industry and that's how it is. And it should be like, what are you a single celled organism? I mean, come on, you got to evolve <laughs> your brain a little bit. You know, you got to look at, um, the, 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 the reality of things that are facing us. And it's like, Oh, it's just weird, man. When people say that kind of stuff, it was really shocking to me. I was like, wow, I couldn't believe here. And you're publicly stating how much of an idiot you are, but it's like, whatever. I mean, I'm being, I'm being, I'm, I wish they were here to defend themselves. So I won't attack them too much. I could sit here and just completely obliterate them, but I don't think that's fair. But, um, 
Yeah, I don't know. It was really interesting. It was, for me, again, <clears throat> as I go back into this, it's like it's really interesting to hear the broad scheme, like the broad spectrum of people's reactions to this, because that's where you know you're, you put that out there and people reacted, and that's really where the things are is people's reactions. That's what I was paying attention to because I'm like, wow, this is interesting to see such different standpoints on this stuff. So. I think we've kind of identified a couple of things. One of them is oversaturation. Um, the next one is going to be um, just, you know, the willingness and, and the vulnerableness of an artist to want to, to do the dream job or be attached to something special. And again, there's no solution for that one, right? Is there a solution for that one? Not that I know of. Yeah, <laughs> I wish there was. But I wish fine. there was. Yeah, me too. And I think forever they're <laughs> going to be uh, abusing that. Uh, one thing I would say, um, so we, I, what I want to get is we've identified a couple things. We As we go through this, I think we should identify a couple more um, reasons why. But one of the things I always use when I talk to my students or just anybody even on the podcast is that when you look at other professions, let's say a firefighter, for example, if you say, hey, firefighter, um, my house is burning and... Uh, can you go and do this and just do it for free? Um, actually, I'm going to call the other firehouse and I just want to see who can put the fire out faster and just do it for free for me, guys, because I don't know, I suck and I want you to do, I want to waste your time, basically. <laughs> and the firefighter would go, hey, go fuck yourself. You know, like, right. I'm not doing, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get in my expensive vehicle that's designed to put your house uh, the fire out and drive all the way over to your house and, and, and invest my time, effort, and energy in my life. Uh, to put the fire out of your house for free. I'm just not going to do it because there's this thing called money and that needs to be uh, exchanged here for our efforts. And so when I look at like, it's it's funny, but it's it's really quite applicable, isn't it? Shouldn't it be applicable? Like, hey, um, I might be an artist. You put out fires. <clears throat> that Of course, that's serious and very important, but I dedicate my life to art. I dedicate my life to being creative. I dedicate my life to design the pursuit of that and, and fulfilling that shouldn't I respect myself the same way as a lawyer or a police officer or a firefighter, for example? And that's what I use. I always use that analogy and I hope people use that as well when they're trying to, they're stuck in these contemplative states of like, should I do work for free or not? And how do you deal with that and stuff? So do you have a better analogy? I'm trying to figure out a solution to give people firepower to manifest these things. Pretty much every, every single analogy you could come up with that doesn't specifically involved design is a great analogy because you're right. I mean, there's no other industry really that you have to jump through that many hoops only to get paid, you know, just to start to get paid. Um, And I don't know why that is exactly. I mean, my, my theory is just that art is sort of a non-essential craft, you know, like it's not, it's not like being a lawyer or being a doctor where you actually physically tangibly fix things in the real world. Um, so I, I think that people sort of devalue, um, commercial art for that reason. Um, because, you know, it's, it's not something that's out in the world that exists already. Therefore, why, I don't know what I'm paying for, you know, like when you, when you, let's to go back to your analogy of a fireman, if you were to pay a fireman, like there's a very specific task there. I need you to put out my fire, you know, here's X amount of dollars. Sure. And it's different in design because what you're doing is taking somebody's abstract, you know, often convoluted idea and doing something that might be equally abstract or, you know, (laughs) um, might be an entirely new original creation. So people I think are just naturally wary of investing in that sort of thing. Rightfully so though. You can't blame them. Can't blame them for that. 
Yeah, because I yeah. agree. Yeah, and it's and you're absolutely right too. And I think the design of the design of it is the flawed version of it. That's what makes it so hard to um, attach, you know, defined meanings. You know, like um, let's say, like uh, I believe it was Paul Rand. Is Paul Rand the one that did uh, Next Computer logo? Is it him? I think it was Saul Bass. Uh, no, it wasn't Saul Bass. It was Paul Rand. I think it was the one that did that. But he charged uh, Steve, I think, like a hundred thousand or something to do the logo or something. And he was like, "I'm doing one logo, and that's it, and that's it. It costs." And and I think Steve was like, "Wow, this is crazy. This guy is like, I've never heard of this, you know." Like whereas like, um, I, I don't. And it's a really interesting case study because anybody could do that if they wanted to. It's just if they had the balls to do it. And same with like uh, Andy Warhol, for example. Like the way that they built their careers are quite interesting. Um, right. It's interesting to study these people because they're sometimes they're almost more business people. They're great at design and business more than like the work that they put out. Sometimes you know. <laughs> um, but that goes into that whole conundrum of, yeah, like these people are ta- like having a ballsy approach of like, yeah, this is costing this much. And that's like, you know, fine art is in that conundrum too. Now it's like, whoa, that's weird. You have a guy like spanking his butt on stage and it's like a million dollar thing or something. I mean, it, like it's like this weird, uh, this weird abstract thing, you know, it gets kind of lost in some kind of weird and people like ourselves, at least for me, I consider myself to be like, um, a journeyman or a craftsman, a person that takes their craft seriously and studies it and lives by it and understands it and understands the nuances and invests a lot of time and energy into that. Therefore that's the value in which I produce, you know, and, and that's a conundrum itself too. And and not everybody has that same approach as well. And it's like, yeah, again, um, we're lost in the abstract, (laughs) as you said, and it's really hard to attach, um, a monetary complete, uh, like, you know, it's 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 so tough it's so abstract <laughs> you know it's 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 so difficult yeah yeah and like yeah going back to your example you know another example is like Saul Bass and the AT&T logo I mean that took um a year to design just that and a lot of that was just research like opposition research but just you know like animation research and like how this thing would move and why it would move and those are a lot of things I think that clients take for granted you know that that information is just out there in the world and you can just pluck it out quickly and you know put it in a bag and shake it up and all of a sudden you have a project that's great. You know, and a lot of good work doesn't come that way. I mean, AT&T is a great case study if, if only for the fact that that logo is still here. Yeah. You know, what? It's <clears> 55 true. Five years later. Yeah. It's not um, non-disposable, but look how long things took back then. Well, I mean, I'm sure things <laughs> happened very fast, but I mean, seriously, can you, can you imagine telling your client like, Oh, I can do your tile sequence. It's going to take me five years though. Yeah. Like, you know, they'll be like, fuck off. I'm going somewhere else, you know? But some things do take time, you know? So Yeah, and I think I think the internet's partially to blame just for that, you know, fast turnaround mentality. Um, sure. just because you see so much work and you just assume it, it just magically appears. Yeah. <laughs> like you don't think about the guy behind that work or the girl behind that work that spends, you know, days, hours, months toiling over that and failing a bunch of times and getting to that final result. Um, you only see the final result. Um, and there's millions of them. And so, you know, the, I think the automatic reaction is just to one, devalue that, but then two, not understand the process, you know, that goes into building that kind of work. Yeah. Or at least just valuing it, you know? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really quite extensive and it gets really, again, it's so freaking abstract, you know, I rack my brain all the time. I'm trying to find a solution for people to help, you know, with this thing. I get a lot of emails, a lot of inquiries, a lot of questions about this stuff, you know, helping people 
find resolve for this solution. You know, I love art. I love being creative. I really want to do this professionally. I want to, I want to provide for my family. And, and for me, living in America and being a part of the American dream and literally living the American dream, I feel like everybody should have access to that. You know, like it, everybody yeah. should have the ability to do that, you know, myself included. And it's, it sucks because I'm trying, I can't find the solution, you know, like I can't, I can't, I haven't been able to find it. It drives me nuts, man. It drives me nuts. Cause I really want to, I want to have that solution for people. I, but I think for me personally, just like by leading by example, um, by not doing that stuff for free and living through the process of, you know, acknowledging people that like Paul Rand or Saul Bass and people that are doing things, uh, had done things at a very high level, and how they have approached the client communications and all that kind of stuff. I think it's important to study that stuff because it's very relevant, you know? Um, do you have, I mean, going through all of this and going through this, I imagine it's consumed a bit of your thought for you personally. Certainly. Yeah. More so these days, but, um, well it's, you know, as a small studio, you know, it's like any little bump is, is felt entirely, you know? And I I think a lot of times, the assumption is that if you're a student, you know, you're, you know, strong, you have an army of terms and, you know, you know, designers that you can just peel off of one thing and throw them on a project and say, okay, pitch on this. And, you know, we're going to focus on the real work. Yeah. But, you know, as a, as a small studio, it's just, it's different. Like we, we definitely feel that. And, you know, I, I'd say if I were to average the past five years together, we probably spend 60 to 70% of our time just on pitches that never see the light of day. You know, mm-hmm. when you look back at it and put things in perspective that way, you know, it's it's sad. Like, we've done a lot of really cool stuff. And, you know, maybe some of that will translate over into personal projects. Maybe not. Yeah. But, um, you know, I just, like, I imagine all the time that we could have put towards things that made it out in the world and had an impact and inspired people as opposed to just, you know, sitting on a backup hard drive. Yeah. No, it's a, yeah, it's an interesting situation. Yeah. I think, um, for me personally, I, I try to like, um, I do my client work. I'm not sure if you guys are the same thing. My formula is I do the client work. I know how much I cost a living. You know, I, I know how, I know that the, the number amount that it costs for me to hit every month. Um, and if work is flowing in, I'll do it and I'll blast through it and then I'll save a nest egg and, and then I'll take time off right. to just do my own thing, which will then evolve myself. And that's, you could say that's free work for sure. I'm the client though at this point and I'm doing that. And then (laughs) from that free work, quote unquote, then I can show the world like, okay, I'm able to do this thing too. And then I'm able to show that showcase it. It gets ripped off a ton or whatever happens from it. But then also clients can see it and they're like, Hey, the right, the right clients will go, Hey, I'm not going to just hire somebody to mimic you. I'm going to hire you to do that thing. And then I'm continuing the cycle of me doing the work that I want to do more and more, you know? Um, but it's, it's, yeah. it's so freaking complicated, man. It's complicated. And also one thing, it's really scary to, to, to fall into that class of people that feel like they're entitled because I don't think that's what I want to be put out there for myself. I don't feel like I should feel I, that I'm, I don't want to be entitled. I don't know if that's, um, the same for you. I don't think that that's necessarily it. It's just more or less just being able to be owed what you feel is due i guess that's the exact what the freaking definition of entitled is but uh, it's 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 complicated you know well and it's tough too because yeah it's it's hard i don't know sometimes i catch myself just feeling like an old grandpa where i'm complaining about how things used to be back in the day and i'm just not paying attention to how things are now because 
sure. Yeah, you know, you can make a living completely off of YouTube bits, and you can make a living doing, you know, going like the crowdsource route, and uh, you know, working with companies like Zupa, where you, you know, pitch on a project with 500 other people, and maybe you'll get it, and maybe you won't. And, you know, that's just how you like. Those are fortunately or unfortunately, those are very valid models, and those are in direct competition to you know, kind of the old school studio system model of, of you know, like selecting a couple companies that you really want to work with inviting them to you know pitch an idea or just straight up inviting them to work on a job um you know and like that mutual level of respect isn't there as much i think as it used to i mean it is on the top level i think like people that really follow design and animation and you know film work and understand the quality that a you know that a bigger and more established studio can bring those people definitely still exist but you know they're far outnumbered by companies that just want to do things for really cheap and just want to do a knockoff of something as opposed to going to the original, you know, designer, that kind of thing. Yeah. Not everybody at the, at the head of the studio is, is aware of the value of design and the powerful impact it does have on, on the overall solution of them getting what they need. Um, and that's again, comes back to like, um, just designers themselves being, um, respected. I don't know how many times it is that I've met somebody that's like, Oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm a designer. I'm like, all right. I've met so many people that say that. And it's like, well, what is that then? And, um, and I think again, when you have an oversaturation, it devalues the marketplace. Basically it's just like an abundance. Basically it kind of, um, shifts everything. But, um, I think what I was getting at earlier yep. is I was trying to helps with strategies for people that might be interested in this is strategies as to how you can go about, um, using proper habits to get the, the things that you need out of the systems in which you work within, you know, and how to use like, you know, the client paid jobs only let that fuel yourself. So you have time to go and do your own work, you know, and if you're working at it at, at a studio, um, you're lucky where you don't have to pay those bills because if they're if the studio themselves are pitching, but what they're going to do is they're going to make you work twice as hard because they're burning at both ends. And eventually they're going to fall and implode kind of like the life of pie thing that happened with the rhythm and hues, you know, where they kind of didn't figure out, right. you know, the cost of things, I guess, or just didn't really see what was going to happen from all that and just kind of blew up in their face, unfortunately. And a lot of people lost their jobs um, and that's just, you know, it's an unfortunate thing. It's just a bad business. Even digital domain had that whole problem when they were doing all that, um, the issues with that lawsuit thing that happened. That was just a big conundrum too. And it happens quite a bit and it happens a lot more than I think we even realize because there's a lot of small studios that go under just because of these very same reasons, you know? So, um, do yeah. you, th- do you think sure. that this industry that there should be, that you should be able to work in it and, you know, there should be longevity for you in this career. Do you, or do you think it's like this, it's designed for younger people that don't want to sleep, don't have a family, don't have a life and just want to get burnt out. (laughs) Uh, you know, unfortunately it's, it's almost always the latter, or at least that's the way that it's sort of set up. And I've I've actually been very conscious of this myself these last few months because I'm a new dad. Um, congratulations. Why? Thank you. Um, yeah, he's, he's six months old now. He's now some little guy, Uh but yeah, Cognitive, you know, like whereas before, you know, like my my wife, she's a fairly motivated person too, and she has her own kind of craft business, and so she's always <clears throat> busy doing her thing. So it was always easy for me to just, you know, spend a nighttime working on something, or you know, take the weekend and focus on a you know a, a labor of love project. 
But now with the kid, like that time doesn't really exist so much anymore. And so all yeah. of a sudden I've been having to think of, of my time in terms of like value. You, you talked about that a little bit before, like figuring out how much you need, um, you know, to get through your monthly bills and, you know, doing that much work. But, you know, it's, it's not just that kind of value, but it's also just a, a, a matter of priority, you know, like what you value in your life and, you know, what's important to focus on. Um, you know, and the, like those are questions that I really wish I would have asked myself like five, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, but I think it took having a kid to really start to get my mind thinking in that, in that way of like, okay, well, you know, I could read this book, um, but is that taking two hours away from something that I really want to be doing on a project or something like that? Um, so I, I think at least for me, that's been really helpful is, is, you know, kind of setting these, these, these boundaries where I can and placing not necessarily a tangible value on things, but just sort of a, a life value, you know, like what is it worth for me to work on this project or to spend two hours with my kid or something like that. Yep. Being, so, being a parent's going to make you a better artist. I think I really do. So. I think hundred <laughs> percent. I think what it's going to do is it's going to allow you to be a perfectionist of your time. Uh, it's, that's what it's, it's for me. And that's what I've seen in a lot of my uh, friends. It's, it allows you to be very cognizant of the time in which you have, um, because it's not, um, my brother said it perfectly because he just recently had, um, well, my, my nephew's like four years old now, so he's not recent, but, um, uh, no, he's actually like six years old now. Shit. I'm the, the kids grow up fast. You'll see that too. <laughs> they go, it's just like you blink and they're boom. They're in a different phase. Um, especially now in, uh, in your son's age, it's just like every, um, week is a different shift. Um, but oh, that's crazy. But yeah. what my, my, my brother said really well, he said like when you're, when you're, when you're born, in your in the the hands of your parent or whoever your guardian it, you are the one priority and you go through life and the whole time you're like it's me i'm the priority you get married you split that but you're still individual but when you create another creation another human being and you care for that either you whether you create it or not or you take on the responsibility or whatever it might be uh you you have to psychologically make that switch of okay i'm not number one anymore this person is now number one. All decisions are made based on this number one person. And if you do that, then you're actually a good human being. If you don't, then you're just some kind of like shithead, you know? So and a lot of people do that. And, you know, I grew up without having a dad. Um, and you know, it's, it sucks, you know, it's, it's hard not having that and not wondering why, but if you take on that responsibility and you really push forward for it and try to be the best that you can. So what's happening for you now, it's just really cool. It's like psychologically you're understanding like, whoa, like there's, it's not me anymore. I'm not able to have that weekend for myself. And again, I think that's just only going to encourage you to be better at what you do. Um, because, uh, yeah, you know, I think it's, um, it's just going to design, you're going to, it's going to be challenging, you know, you're going to, but it's going to make you a more efficient person, I think, and a more cognizant of person. It's funny, all my friends that aren't parents, um, and then the ones that are, it's, uh, Lucy K has a great bit on it. I don't know if you ever watch his bits, but he has this really funny bit where he kind of makes fun of his friend that's single. And he's like, Oh, I don't know. Like, I'm angry because the light in my room doesn't look good. And he's like, well, fucking get shades, you know? And he's like, he's just talking about like how silly, um, the problems are before you're, 
married and have kids and dealing with the the nuances of being a parent and all that kind of yeah. stuff. It's quite interesting. So, yeah, I yeah think, having um, a kid more than anything, I think having a kid will give you an existential crisis. You yeah. really start thinking about you know <clears throat> who you are, what you want out of the, what you want out of life, like what's important to me. Yeah, it's that'll definitely do it for you. It's so but, good though. It's so good. Um, yeah, responsibility. Um, if you can handle it, it will only make you stronger. I think, you know, taking responsible yeah. responsibility for yourself as a person. And at the end of all this, what we're talking about is literally you, the person that's listening to this, uh, taking responsibility for you and your actions and how you want to live your life through this world. You know, you can choose to be uh, a pissant that gets kicked and pushed around and disrespected and you're thrown away in the trash. Or you can be, you can choose to be a memorable person that contributes positively to the community in which you love to be a part of. You, you define that, you know, I really believe that. And that's up to you to decide, you know, and it's tough and it's very tough. You know, there's constantly, there's, there's a million different teasing elements that will come in here like, Oh, let's do this. This is so cool. Do it for free. You're like, ah, all I want to do, all I want to do is do that. Cause that's so cool. But you know, you got to have respect for yourself. I remember making that (laughs) switch. It was really tough. You know, it's tough to do that, but is there anything else that we can kind of help equip the people that are listening, anybody out there with this? Because there was, you know, again, looking at the spectrum of responses from that episode, um, there was everybody from you know, like I said earlier, from thanking you for bringing this topic up to like shunning you for bringing the topic up. Um, is there any kind of ammo that you think that we could leave with the listeners to kind of have in their wheelhouse to go like, Oh, I'm personifying this. I'm identifying with this. Ben mentioned this in that podcast. It's going to help me better understand how to deal with this very complex situation and how to make the right rules so that the industry itself and the, and the rest of everybody in this industry doesn't, you know, fail from my misgiving basically. Right. Well, I think, I mean, if all this stuff talked about condensed down, I think a lot of that comes down to being able to respect and value the work that you do. And I think that's, what's missing a lot these days Yeah. only because there's so much of it out there that people don't have a lot of, not just respect, but even confidence in the in the work that we do, and that's something that uh, being in this business for you know a year or twenty years, like that can beat you down. Is you know having to go up against a bunch of you know a bunch of studios or a bunch of people for a job, and then getting knocked down, and that yeah. happening two days later, and that happening a week later. <clears throat> um, yeah, and with so much with so much out there um, and so much saturation, it's, it's, it's hard to think of yourself as an individual, but I think that's, what's important to remember is that what's in your head has value. It really matters. Like the perspective that you bring to things is completely unique. Um, assuming, well, you know, we're, we're assuming that, you know, we're not talking about something that just rips people off, but you know, like people that make work, that's like, however those neurons fire in your head to kind of put ideas together is completely unique to just you. Um, and so when you take on a lot of free work or you just kind of do this stuff because you feel like you have to, like you're, you're devaluing that in yourself and that just kind of feeds back into the the same problem. There's, um, there's a a term in psychology called imposter syndrome. I don't know if you, if if you've heard of that before. Yeah. Actually, Um, Philippe Carvalho just sent it over to me. There's an interesting article I posted on my Facebook, but yeah, this is, I'd love to, yeah, please go on. It's it's really interesting. (laughs) 
Cool. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, it's like so. You know the the definition. I think the the the, the basic uh, the basic definition of imposter syndrome is somebody that sort of feels like at like at whatever like they go through life in constant fear that they're going to be exposed as a fraud. And it's like a, it's a very genuine belief. Like yeah. even even if you've got evidence that um, kind of says the opposite of that out in the real world, like if you're an accomplished artist, and especially it's it's especially common in artists too. Um, yeah. Because it's so abstract. And, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's like you're putting all this work out, um, and it's you know presumably new and original, and you just don't know how how it's going to be received. And, and you putting work out in the world, like you place a lot of uh, of expectation on that. And when it gets rejected, obviously that 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 tends to feed back into that loop that we have as, as designers and artists that maybe we're not good enough or maybe we, we you know our ideas aren't better than anybody else's. But that's just the wrong way to think about it. Yeah, but. I don't know. Like, I don't know how it was for you, but like when I wrote, first wrote about imposter syndrome, like my first reaction was like, holy shit, that's me. Yeah, exactly. But it, then yeah. whenever I mentioned that to somebody, everybody else always says, holy shit, that's me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and especially amongst artists, that's just the way it goes. Like you, it's, it's really hard to place a value on yourself when you're, when you're constantly kind of judging yourself by the other work that's out there. Yeah. Um, so, like as abstract of a point as as can be made with that, I think that's that's something that as designers, as artists, is is important to get around. Is this idea that <clears throat> that what you create um, is unique and it does have value, and that and how you communicate that out in the world uh, to clients or whoever, like those things matter, you know? Yeah. No, you're you're right. I think taking pride in the craft of what you do is is a, is a starting point of of having that success and and silencing your insecurities and also silencing people that want you to do it for free. Because if you really take pride in it, you're like, well, fuck off. I love this. This is I've spent so many years working on this, and this is a part of who I am. I'm not going to just cheaply just give it to you, you know. And um, right, but that it's so difficult, man. Yeah, again. I don't have the answer. It's still quite difficult because every situation is different. How about this, everybody? If you have a question, just ask us and we'll help you. No, I'm joking. Don't do that. No, because <laughs> it's, it's all per situation, you know, like, hey, look at this. I have this thing. And like, oh, OK, try that, you know. But um, I guess it's more or less you're you're right. And I think it, um, and everybody out there, the, 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 the one of the, big, the best things I think you can do, um, not only as a creative person, um, but also as a, as a, as a, as a human being is to take pride in what you do and really, uh, you know, have respect for yourself because of the pride that you have in which the things that you do, you know? Um, but yeah, right. I mean, you know, like if you're hearing this now and you've, you're like, holy shit, I have imposter syndrome. And then we're, we are telling you that we feel we have it too. And considering for most people, we would be what somewhat accomplished people in this industry, um, just to let you guys know, it doesn't go away. It doesn't disappear. It's, 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 it's like Dexter. It's always there. The dark passengers are just how you deal with the dark passenger of imposter syndrome, you know? So, <laughs> um, but you know, there, there, there are moments in my life where I don't have the imposter syndrome though. And those are the moments that I'm continually trying to recreate, you know? Um, those are moments where I'm in complete control and I know what I'm doing and I feel confident and, that's usually um, the moment that I'm trying to recreate constantly, you know, but yeah, those are, yeah. those are difficult to get to though. They're really difficult. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. And this is, like it's, I said, this is a very complex thing and trying to deal with it and using, 
I mean, we're using the platform of the podcast as a design mechanism. I think it's much better than um, not to take anything away from Oceanographer because what they have there and the, the setup is amazing. But having those comments, I think, is a great starter. But this is a much more dynamic thing. I wish I had somebody else on here who was like a proponent for pitching, you know, so they could tell us their angle. And then I could right. just, I could just shame them to death on the podcast. So <laughs> no, I would I have no shame. I'll speak my mind about these things, even if uh, I mean, it, perhaps that's ego or whatever it might be. But I feel firmly and I strongly believe in this stuff. So I'll speak my mind about it because it's just wrong. I know it's wrong. And those people know it's wrong, too. They're just getting in the way of it. So it's just bullshit. So perpetual bullshit. It never stops. So <laughs> but I think, yeah, I mean, it's important. I think it. Up, up at this level to kind of talk about these things, even if, you know, we're not the new generation of, of, of people that are coming into this industry, because what's important for them to understand is that in 10 or 15 years, they will be, they're going to be ready with their own, you know, whatever it'll be, VR podcast or what have you, uh, <laughs> old man. Um, <clears throat> you know, complaining about the same things because the next generation of people is, is are going to undercut them and it's going to be a perpetual cycle. So it's, I think it's important for people coming into the industry to understand that yes you do have to jump through these crappy hoops but at the same time you have to be very conscious of whatever you're doing no matter how small does set a, pre- a precedent in the industry that'll that'll come back to bite you in 10 years like I, I fully i fully blame myself and mk12 um along with other studios and people for the for the problem that we're in now for continuing to accept free pitch work and just kind of like the thinking that that's just because it had that's how it had to be Hmm. you know if we got invited to do three pitches or a a triple bid pitch um you know like the assumption that there was just not going to be any money there and if we wanted to work like we would just have to jump through that hoop yeah um you know and as you know as as we got a little bit more um a little bit better known that changed a little bit but at the same time like that's just because that's a standard that we help set that's just how things are these days. And it's, if we kind of continue down the path that we've been on for the past five or six years, it's only going to get worse and worse. I mean, yeah. How much worse can it be? (laughs) That's the thing like this. That's why I think this is a very important topic for right now, because you know, I'm not, I'm not sure how things are on your side of the pond, but like for us, like the budgets can't get much worse and the pitching criteria can't get much worse. Yeah. And you know, the reason I wanted to put, um, that thing on motionographer was, you know, like I just, I just had my kid who I was a few months in, it was, you know, three o'clock in the morning and I was finishing pitching on one thing. And then this other pitch came in and there was another job and like, how do you deal with all of this shit and still one, enjoy what you do to make money doing it and um, be a family person. I'm left over to, you know, do other things that you enjoy because it's not to ramble on, but like, those other things are specifically what makes you unique in terms of the, the, the work that you do, you yeah. know, like the experiences that you have out in the world, that's all that you have to, to set yourself, uh, you know, to, to make yourself different from other artists. And so, you know, limiting that by only working all the time, like you're really not doing yourself as a, a good service there. You know, yeah. you're like, you're not, you're not helping yourself grow. You're just kind of stuck in that feedback loop. 
Yeah, definitely. And I've caught, been caught in it and it's cool. And I appreciate you taking responsibility for it as well, acknowledging what you've done in the past and why it's let you here. And, and, but at the same time, um, and I've done the same thing too. Um, before I would do work for free because I was eager to do it and I was naive at the fact of it. Um, and I think, you know, there's a part that I think that's just going to happen to so many people. And I think it's just a part of it, but just being a little cognizant, I think you're absolutely right. If, if you do really love this industry and you really want to have your place in it, um, and you're, you're thinking about doing it for the long haul. Um, yeah, you know, the, the shit, the mess that you make, you're going to have to walk through it, you know? So be cautious of that because, uh, you're, you know, the, 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 um, I don't know what, for whom the bell tolls or whatever that that whole saying I forget the, how it goes but basically yeah you're gonna you're gonna have to come to terms with the with the mess you've created you know like as as I notice in, in humanity uh, as a species we're being much more cognizant and aware of what we're doing to this planet um, more than ever um, and it's just like you know it's it's interesting you know like we're 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 having to face the realities in which that there isn't just this abundance and you're not going to have abundance of time and energy when you do become a parent and all this stuff, you're going to be, you're going to be strapped for time and it's going to be difficult to deal with those things. Again, as I mentioned, I think you becoming a parent has done only good things for you and it's only going to continue doing good things for you as much as they would, may, might not seem like it at times, you know? So <laughs> I think it's a good thing, yeah. you know? So, cause you're just kind of getting more cognizant and aware of what it is that you're doing, you know, and, and how to, how it is that you're, you've gotten to where you're getting, you know? So, well, I think good work often comes out of giving yourself your own self-imposed, you know, deadlines, yes. um, which is very counterintuitive to, I think how a lot of people work myself included where, you know, you want to spend X amount of hours on something. Um, you don't want to stop working on it until it's perfect, <clears throat> but giving yourself those limitations, you know, saying like, okay, I only have a few hours to work on this. Um, so I'm going to do the best I can. Like, I don't, you know, like at MK 12, we always joke, like maybe we're going to turn, we, we should call ourselves 11th hour instead of MK 12, because it seems like, you know, when we, when we're kind of strapped with the deadline, we really have to work. Like that's when the best stuff happens yeah. somehow magically, you know, <laughs> and it's, yeah. it's been that way with the kid too. Like having those restrictions before I like it terrified me. Um, but somehow those have all worked out really well. You'll, fi- you'll kinda, figure it out. You'll figure out what it is because that's you finding your own ebbs and flows as a creative person and why those ingredients make great work. You'll find it. If you keep searching for it, you'll see it. It's more like yeah. searching for it, you know, <laughs> understanding the ingredients of what makes great work to you. It's a difficult one, though. I'm the same way. Yeah. That's why I, 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 I identify that. And then when you do that, then you can figure it out, you know. I think creative consolidation, I think is another valuable lesson I've learned, like being able to find ways to like group two or three things together to get them all done at the same time. Like <clears throat> I love, I love photography and I was really worried about like, okay, that might be one thing that I'll just have to put to the side when I have a kid and just focus on, you know, my work at MK12 and, and my home life. But since, uh, since we've had them, like I've made a point, like, okay, if we go out, I'm just going to bring my camera. And, you know, so therefore like I'm, I'm kind of killing two birds with one stone there. I'm still spending time doing things that I like to do, but not necessarily making it, making it feel like I need to compete to do those, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's a good way of approaching it too. It just, that's a compromise though. You know, it's like, uh, acknowledging that compromise is quite important, I think, because that's only going to help you, um, deal with like the multiple changes that are going to happen, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, this has been sure. awesome. I think that, um, well, first and foremost, I appreciate you being here and also for allowing the podcast to kind of focus around a topic rather than yourself. Uh, personally, I try to split it up a bit, but I feel like your purpose with this stuff is, 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 is bigger than you sometimes, you know, I think, it, and I think that's what I identified with, with you putting out that becking call that basically like throwing that out there for people. So I, I appreciate you being here and, and being cool with that. And at the same time, also just kind of, uh, us trying to find a solution for this. I don't think we necessarily did, but I think we've identified the problems. I think we've got, given some people some things to kind of, um, like giving them a sword to yield when they have to face the dragon, I guess, you know, so <laughs> metaphorically yeah. speaking, obviously. Um, but, um, yeah, is there any last, I like want to always end these episodes positively and on a guy, a good note, is there any advice or tips or, or feedback that you think that you can give to your past self to help, um, solve some of the solutions, uh, or the problems that you see, um, right now? I mean, we've already kind of talked, talked about a bit of them, but is there anything else that you can think of? Nothing additional. I mean, yeah, if I were to talk to my, you know, 15 years younger self, it would be what we've been talking about and like finding ways to, to kind of create boundaries for your time and respect your time and respect your, you know, your efforts as an artist. Um, no, but, uh, but as a last minute plug, uh, sort of continuing on this discussion, um, I'll also be moderating a panel at Style Frames in November at New York. Uh, specifically about these about these things, and I'm hoping we can get together a good group of industry people from agencies and uh, and reps, uh, crowdfunding models, uh, studios, get everybody together and have a dialogue about this and hear the other side. I think it's really easy for us as creatives to sit here and bitch a lot about you know, yeah. the problems with agencies or studios or whatever. Um, but we don't get to hear the other side of that story. Totally. I think that's important. Very important. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm very much looking to that. Looking forward to that panel. If people um, are interested in getting more information on that, how can they get access to it? Uh, well, if you just go to the StyleFrames website, I think it's just styleframes.com. Okay. And I'm going to suck for not remembering that off the top of my head. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, all the all the information will be there. They they announce your speakers, but they haven't announced the topics yet. So that'll be up. I think in probably a week or two. I was supposed to go to that one. I think I just got. I can only do so many of these things a year. I'm lucky to be able to travel around, but it's exhausting for me to be there yeah. and, and to perform properly and be cognizant and everything that's going on. But yeah, th these are, I've heard really great things about that event in particular. Um, and that's really cool. And that's awesome of you to do that, to put that, to be a part of that. And also to kind of bring the other perspective. Cause again, as I mentioned, it's, it's easy, as you said too, it's easy for us to sit here and bitch about it. Um, but it's important to get the proper view of it. I'm curious, maybe we can do another episode after you go through this and get a good grasp of everything. Uh, maybe we can bring somebody else on that you felt was intriguing to kind of keep chipping away at this. That'd be really cool if you're up for that. Um, just kind of taking this yeah. conversation further because, it, yeah, this is a, an entry point. This is us acknowledging the problem, having a couple interesting ideas, but no real complete solutions for a huge problem that is facing creatives uh worldwide basically um and i think it's something that we need to find a resolve for and i think we owe it to ourselves and the community to do so so killer any other <laughs> any other plugs anything else you want to give a shout out say hi to your mom or something like that so <laughs> hey mom <laughs> yeah. well the usual suspects no i'm good um no thank you very much for uh for having me on it's been it's been a lot of fun awesome so I, I really appreciate it 
And thank you for the countless years of inspiration and, and the things that you guys have done over there. Thank you to big thanks to your teammates and everybody over there. Appreciate it. And um, yeah, keep trucking and we'll keep in touch and have a great trip out there. And um, any, everybody that's interested in that will definitely have links as well for this as well. So you guys can be able to go check it out if you're interested in more of this stuff. And also just, you know, get that conversation going. If you guys want, just like, you know, get at us or, you know, on Twitter or whatever. That's not the best place, but um, just keep this conversation going because I think it's it's valid of our time and attention. I think we should all be addressing it. So, yeah. Absolutely. Killer. Couldn't Thank- agree Awesome. Thank you so much, Ben. And congratulations on being a a new dad. And uh, we'll chat soon. We will. Thanks, Ash. And that concludes this week's episode. Big thank yous to Ben for coming on the show and sharing his time with us this week. You can find links to the show notes for this week's episode at thecollectedpodcast.com slash 140, along with links to our Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes podcast page. Have an amazing day, everybody. Be powerful. Be prolific. Peace out.